Normally, I open these episodes with some kind of philosophical question or mysterious statement, but I've got a bit of a bad cough today because I've had COVID recently. I may still have it. I'm going to be testing soon. So, you know what? I'll just send us marching forward. This episode is on Chiu Chung Ting's Reigning Zebra Finches. My guest is its translator, Mei Huang. Before uh, I treat you guys to my interview with Mei Huang, we're going to do something called the Translated Chinese Fiction News, the Church of Fig News. I just deleted a cough from the audio track there. Uh, you guys wouldn't, didn't have to hear it. I might be deleting a few more of these as, as the uh, news segment progresses. So if, if it seems broken up or weird, that'll be why. So the first news item, uh, all three news items this, this episode are books that have been announced or published and we got, we got three of them. So the first one, this is from Ballastier Press or is it Ballastier Press? I don't know. But uh, the book, the book in question that they have brought out is called The Pigeon Warrior. This is a book dating back to the 1930s, but it has been recently translated by David Hull, who is, I believe, a bit of a translator's translator, at least he's popular with a lot of the guests I've had on the show in past. And this book is a kung fu satire of what exactly? I'm not sure. The cosmopolitan Shanghai of the time, maybe? It's, it's a Shanghai, it's a wartime Shanghai novel, anyway. I guess I can read the blurb, it's, it's pretty short. We'll see how many times it makes me cough. In the, the 1930s, wartime Shanghai is a cosmopolitan metro- metropolis where conmen and dancehall girls mingle with refugees streaming in from the occupied areas. One of those refugees is Shi Zhaochang. Having read too many Gong Fu novels, he is convinced that only an elite martial artist with magical powers can save China. He flees to Shanghai on a quixotic search for a Gong Fu master who can teach him the secret techniques that will make himself that warrior. The fate of China itself hangs in the balance and everyone has a scheme to save the nation or at least get rich trying. Pigeon Warrior is a <laughs> rollicking satire of nationalism and modernity that is remarkably relevant today. There you go. Okay, speaking of uh, nationalism, perhaps um, I'll let you work out why. Um, there is a new translation forthcoming from former guest on the show, Shweting C. Ni. Yes, the C stands for Christine, but it's now just a C. Shweting uh, has got a new collection of horror um, short stories translated from various authors in the works. It's going to be called Sinophagia. So, Phagia? Sinophagia? I don't know. But it's going to be sort of a spiritual sequel in a way to Synopticon, or Synopticon, which was, if you don't remember, that was her collection of uh, sci-fi stories by various authors that she had translated and put together in a sort of Ken Leo-style anthology. And now she's done doing the same for horror. It's going to be the same publisher, uh, Rebellion Publishing. So that is um, going to be released in 2024, apparently. But they've announced the list of uh, authors that she's going to be publishing in translation. Okay, now another book that is uh, out. I've covered this one on the show's news slot before. It's it's Tsan Shue's Mystery Train, translated by Natasha Bruce. This has got a quote and a blurb. I'll skip the quote and just read the tiny little blurb. A chicken farm employee named Scratch, sent by his manager to buy feed, has boarded the right train. Hasn't he? 
So what if the destination on the ticket is wrong, or if he's locked in his compartment, or if the lights are off and it's suddenly freezing cold? Ooh, I just got a shiver down my spine. And surely the whispers of a pending accident are referring to some other event long in the past, right? Part allegory, part fever dream, Mystery Chain leads the reader on an unsettling journey into a dark wilderness, thick with intrigue, mysterious women, and wolves. Ooh, wolves. To tell my girlfriend about this. This one's out from Sublunary Editions in the States. I have not checked if it's out anywhere else yet. Hope it is. But yep, there's <coughs> there's your new segment. I've coughed quite a lot as I've been recording this, <coughs> but I'll have edited. <coughs> oh my god, I will have edited them out. I think for you guys, so you'll probably hear some weird edits. Those are the ghostly spaces where the coughs once lived. So yeah, there you go. On to more ghostly stuff. Reading Zebra Finches and my chat with its translator Mei Huang. Hope you enjoy this one. It was a, it's a very good story. It's not out yet in English language publication, uh, but Mei Huang is working on that, and you'll hear where it's going to be coming out during our interview. So enough of me. On with the interview. So on the show we have Mei Huang. Mei, fantastic to have you here. Welcome aboard. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, sure.、Um, thank you so much, Angus, for inviting me to be on your podcast, which is great.、Um, I am Mei. I am a literary translator, and I translate from Chinese to English with a focus on literature from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Okay, nice and succinct. And、yeah. <laughs> how did you start out as a translator? What's your origin story? Um, so I got into translation in in college through the creative writing department. There,、um, I took a course on prose translation with Annie Janusz, who translates from German, and she's wonderful.、Um, and it was kind of an interesting time in my life then, because you know, as a writer, because I had grown up writing poetry,、um, and I wanted to do more poetry in college. But in college, I was so busy writing essays <laughs> for class that I feel like a lot of my brain space, you know, like I was having trouble like balancing. Critical and creative parts of my brain,、um, and translation ended up being a very ideal middle ground, I think, for、mm. for both those things. So, and it was also a way for me to connect with home at a time when I was feeling very homesick. I think through translation, I really got to like better understand literature from Hong Kong and Taiwan, which, believe it or not, I had not really studied in school. Although I grew up in Hong Kong,、um, we didn't study any contemporary poets. We like、mm. read Hemingway. In Chinese, so <laughs>、um, so yeah, I think translation was kind of a re-education for me in that sense. But that is my origin story. So, pardon me for being curious. Ask you a follow-up question. So, in Hong Kong, in the education system, you weren't reading any Hong Kong writers. Were you reading any other Sinophone writers? We were. Well, we were. So, I guess I should clarify that.、Okay. I, so, I went to a bilingual school in Hong Kong. And obviously, we had Chinese class, and I feel like most of the poetry that I studied at least growing up was like the Tang Dynasty poets, and a lot of like poems you had to memorize and recite、mm-hmm. every week.、Yeah. Um, I don't think we read any contemporary poetry, even as an elective. We did read like Ru Guangzhong. We studied a lot. He's a you know one of the foremost Taiwanese contemporary poets, but we didn't. I feel like we didn't study anyone who was like. Young and living and like writing poetry right now, so I'm glad I got to do that through through college in a roundabout way. But I wish I had done that more in, more in high school. So maybe it's different now. But when I was in high school, we, we didn't. So okay, interesting. 
Yeah. That, that's my nosiness satisfied. So <laughs> if we can head on to talk about the story now. It's called Raining Zebra Finches and it's by Cho Chang Ting. Can you first give us a little... Now, um, a previous interview I did, um, actually, the interviewee scolded me for using the term elevator pitch because it's so corporate. So until I think of a better phrase, I'm just going to stick with it. Can you give us the elevator pitch or the um, premise of the story? Yeah, I actually don't mind that term. Um, but I also work in PR. That's my day job, mm. which I didn't mention in my intro. So I, all I do is pitch all the time. <laughs> so... Right. Um, but for this story, so Raining Zebra Finches, uh, it's about a complicated mother-daughter relationship. The daughter, who is our protagonist, is a biology student who comes back home to Taiwan. Um, and throughout the story, we hear about this kind of interesting experiment she's doing involving these finches, these birds. Her mother um, used to be a witch in an Aboriginal tribe. And the story follows several conflicts that happen in their family. And it also explores themes like the supernatural and the real. And in terms of genre, I want to say, like, the story surprises you towards the end and maybe becomes a little horror-y. <laughs> but yeah, I, that's that's my little teaser without too many spoilers. I think we'll we'll probably do an all right job avoiding spoilers because um, full disclosure to listeners, I read this one once and then I went away on holiday and I've actually Ooh. not read it all the way through again. So I'm literally not capable of spoiling this one i think but i remember enough um i have to mention uh, my own self um what's the word narcissistic interests that this this um narrator when she studied abroad she went to glasgow right yes she did yeah, my home country but not my hometown it's funny you mentioned that because i spent a long time googling the universe like the university and the because you know in the story she's she gets pretty specific about like which building it is mm. and which university and what subject she studies. And so I did have to play a little game of like looking up the universities in Glasgow and making sure I found the right one, so to speak. And then when I finished translating the story and sent it to the writer, she actually was like, oh, I made a mistake in my original <laughs> piece. Or not a mistake, but she was like, they're actually the the like subject I talked about is not offered at this university or whatever. But I said, it's fine. No one will know. <laughs> So do, do you know, has, has Chio done anything like that or is this uh, her own invention? Do you know? Has she studied abroad, you mean? Yeah, like, or in, in Glasgow even. She is actually in the UK right now. Um, oh. I can't remember where, but she's there right now. Um, and I could be wrong. I feel like her husband, like, studied there, you know, in the UK or something. That okay. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, I... I I didn't ask her too much about like, you know, how much of this, at least the protagonist's like life journey is autobiographical, but I feel like maybe some of it. <laughs> I thought it might be good to get into the zebra finches. We won't spoil why they're raining, maybe, uh, okay. but I think the significant significance of the zebra finches is, is, is pretty interesting as well as just being a um, great piece of, I don't know, st story, storytelling mm -hmm. description. I thought the way she handled that was, I don't know, special something yeah. you don't see in stories so often mm -hmm. so i'll i'll do a little trick i do on the show i'll try and describe it um as best as i remember and if you feel i've missed anything really crucial uh like the whole point of it maybe then you could fill in so she's doing some kind of biology uh biological studies and 
some of the animals they're working with are these zebra finches mm -hmm. that are kept in, um, I think they're kept in cages in a basement, if not a basement, a sort of a quiet, large room. Mm -hmm. And this is where my memory starts to, to get fuzzy. Um, she she um, is very kind of concerned for their welfare, but realizes they're also very fragile creatures. Is that, I'm sure, what, have, what have I missed there? That, I think that is correct. That's all correct. Um, but I can fill in the gaps about what the experiment entails. So yes, they're in a basement. She has, you know, all these birds in a basement. And the experiment she's trying to do is she is testing a hypothesis, which is that if I keep a bunch of birds in the basement, will they ever like learn to fly or will they like know that there's a sky out there? Um, I knew I was forgetting the one <laughs> crucial thing. <laughs> so like she has like a, what's it called? Like a control group and like a variable group of birds. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, for example, she'll with one of the birds, like with one of the groups of birds, she will put them in the cage and then put like food higher up in the cage and the birds will learn to like fly up and get the food. Um, whereas the other birds in the other cage who don't have to fly to get their food don't quite develop the same behavioral skills or, or, or motor skills in that sense. So she, that's her experiment. And at the start of her experiment, one of her lab mates tells her that like, you know, if you got into this because you love animals, I should tell you right now that a lot of people, like the, the more they kind of experiment on the animals, the crueler they become towards them. It's a kind of dilemma or you know ironic situation that happens mm -hmm. and yeah that theme and pattern of like being intimate with someone or something but then also cruel with them is kind of also reflected in her family like her and her mother her mother and her father so that's something we see beyond the experiment too but it's interesting that these that the birds are at the center of it so right I mean, we'll get more into that later i'm sure yeah. <laughs> So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this author. Um, I figured since you've translated her, you might know a thing or two. Yeah, she. so Cho Chanting, um, who is this author that I've been translating, she's a writer from Taiwan. Um, her work I, spans different genres. She's you know written fantasy as well as more literary fiction type stories. Um, in 2020, um, Unitas Publishing House, they named her one of 20 young writers to watch. And that's sort of how I ended up discovering her work. She has another book out called Young Gods, um, which in Chinese is Xingshen, which is a collection of five interconnected short stories. And that's the book that I read that for me opened the doors to this, to this wonderful author. And I've been lucky to translate her work ever since, slowly but surely. <laughs> um, and this specific story won, a, won an award in Taiwan. So, you know, I'm translating her other book, Young Gods, that I just mentioned. And I wanted to translate something shorter on the side to kind of like absorb more of her style and voice and so that's kind of how i ended up translating this particular story but yeah she i think i'm excited to read more of her work and keep translating her work cool uh being nosy again does <laughs> young gods have a publisher it does not so i'm still shopping uh but yeah it's a long process as is i think a lot of translators <laughs> can relate to <laughs> okay so any publishers who are listening you're missing a trick if you don't snap this one up Thank you. That's very kind of you. That's all right. We'll see if it gets you anything. Um, have you had much correspondence with Chio at all, or have you ever met her? Yeah. Well, so yes, the correspondence haven't met her yet. But next time in Taiwan, or you know, if she's in the UK, I, I hope to meet her someday. But yes. So I one of actually one of the reasons why I mostly only translate living writers is because 
I very much value being able to collaborate with them and share the joy with them of translating their work because a writer who has passed on cannot appreciate their work being translated, you know, in real time. So, so I think, yeah, I, I always love translating living writers. And with, before I started translating Young Gods, I emailed her to first make sure, is it okay? Um, and I think we based, and this was at the start of the, start of the pandemic, basically. And I, I, we basically became pen pals, I think, um, in a way, you know, because I would email her about her story and ask her questions. And yeah, I think it was, I'm very grateful that I was able to develop like an email relationship with her. Um, I think that's, for me, you know, as a translator, that's what I value most above all is having that relationship with your author and making sure that there's that trust there. Um, so, so yes, I, I have talked to her before and like, for I'm, I have kind of a funny story to share, but in Young Gods, there's a scene in the story I was translating where there are like fish tanks everywhere in the story, um, like fish tanks on the side of the street, which is something I've never, ever seen. Um, and, and when I was translating that story and like walking around Berkeley, which is where I live, I saw a fish tank on the street and I said, took a photo and emailed her to her. And I was like, what are the chances? Right. So I just, little things like that make, make me feel like, oh, maybe this was meant to be, you know, <laughs> synchronicities. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, isn't it? They, they're, they seem to be real. Who yeah. knows what they're about, but maybe it's just selection bias, but yeah. yeah. So be careful what you translate because you never know what might pop up in your life because of that. Yeah, you don't know what doors you're opening. Yeah, um, yeah it's as, as well as, like you said, the nice thing about the offer being alive, mm -hmm. uh, that you can have feedback yeah. and celebrate the fruits of your labors together. The trust thing is definitely relevant too, mm -hmm. because a dead offer, I always use Lu Shun as an example mm -hmm. for everything. <laughs> if you do a new quirky slash innovative slash maybe ill-advised translation of a Lu Shun book, mm -hmm. he can't stop you and be like, what, what are you, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I guess Chill could, if you did a really bizarre translation of her stuff. Yeah. Well, I think so, you know, on that note too, I, I feel like I've been very lucky. I've never worked with a translator who has been, I mean, a writer who has been difficult to work with. There are actually a lot, maybe not a lot, but there are definitely a few stories I've heard where that collaboration doesn't go so well. Like, I think as a translator, you never want to feel like, oh, like I need to show my author what I translated in order to feel like I did a good job. And mm. I definitely know translators who don't even send their author what they did and their author doesn't ask for it, you know, doesn't ask for it either because that that itself is a form of trust too, right? Like I trust what you right. yeah. I don't need to read it. Um, I think my personality is just that I feel like, you know, I... Uh, I want to be able to share with the writer before it goes out into the world. I think that's just my style and personality as a translator, but it definitely is not necessary. And I, I have heard of instances where the writer sometimes like feels like they get to make the final call or like they are more of an expert than the translator. And then that ends up hurting the translated text, right? So that's not a fun situation either, but so that's, so I think, yeah, because of that, it's important to also be very choosy if you can about who you're translating because you're not just trying you're not just choosing the text you want to engage with you're also choosing the person you want to engage with so mm. yeah. yeah interesting mm -hmm. i won't give specifics but in my previous job with Sino's books we had a little bit of this where some yeah. it's a the, all they do is translate uh, chinese authors of various sorts yeah. and publish them in translation and yeah some of them they're 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 happy yeah uh they they don't want too much input Others, um, 
a lot of the details of the publication matter even beyond the text and yeah you if you want to keep the relationship going and do another one of their books then yeah you have to take it into account Mm -hmm. um i could probably go on and on and on about this i'll just give one thing for the listeners um if they've not done this if you want a really interesting example of what seems like a love hate or a very animated relationship Mm -hmm. between or exchange between an author and a translator uh, Howard Goldblatt and Jiang Rong's mm. collaboration on Wolf Totem is a is a spicy one. There's a lot of well, there are at least some anecdotes out there. Could go into a whole <laughs> uh, tangent about that, but let's not. Um, let's let's talk about uh, more about translation. Actually, um, I'm curious if you faced any challenges or vexing problems or um, engaging fun challenges whilst you were translating uh, reading Zebra Finches. Is, is there anything? Mm, yes. So, I mean, I think my answer to that question for any translation would always be yes. <laughs> um, right. For the story, one of my main challenges, and interestingly, this is a pattern I have observed across different texts I've translated um, from Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, but there were a lot of scientific terms in the story, you know, there because our protagonist is a biologist and the mother in the story, she at, you know, at her farm, is mixing this like weird chemical mixture thing that becomes important in this story. But because of this, there's a lot of words in the story like, I don't know, like symbiotic bacteria or um, monomers. Like there there were a lot of, even in the, I think the opening paragraph gave me that, gave me grief. It was- right. Science vocab. Yeah, I, let me see if I can find the, find the first sentence, but it was something like the, the story opens with an image of a dead deer in the rain and the writer is describing like what that looks like and how the scene kind of looks electric in a way um and you know this there's a sentence that says like microorganisms nod away quietly exchanging trace elements absorbing the weaker monomers to form new substances or nutrients for the plants and soil that took me forever to um unpack from even chinese <laughs> And I think what makes it challenging is, you know, first of all, like, I think as a literary translator, I like to think that my job is translating literature and not scientific jargon. But sometimes you got to do both. And Uh, I think the challenge there is like, how can I make sure I am translating what needs to be translated that is scientific while making sure I don't completely take my reader out of the story? Like if you're reading a short story, you don't want to have all these question marks in your head because you're like, what is this bacteria or whatever. So sometimes like little glosses help with that, but I think most of all, and also like my background translating poetry, I think helped me with this because you can, I think, you know, when I translate like really complicated terms or whatever, I just try to remind myself if I can make this sentence still sound lyrical and poetic, even if I've got the jargon in there, it's still, it still fits with the overall like landscape of a story and the, and the tone. So, but that was definitely a challenge. And I think when I was, whenever I do my, when I did my first draft, like a lot of it was me leaving certain things blank, like certain bacteria names blank. And then being like, I will come back mm. to this later <laughs> because I will right. go down a rabbit hole and, and it'll take forever. But that's something I've seen across almost like everything I translate. Even I was presenting a Hong Kong poem recently where one entire stanza was just like a bunch of tree names. And that just took ages right. for me to like 
Google the tree name and make sure that whatever its English name was, wasn't something that would look crazy in a poem, you know? So mm. translating nature was, was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen that yeah. in some stories where the, um, there's some specific species has been named in the original Chinese and it's probably just one or two characters in the original Chinese. And then in English, it's um, it's like three words. And one of the words is Chinese, because mm. um, it would be like Chinese so-and-so herb. And it's like, okay, yeah. if this was a biology textbook, great. But this is killing the vibe. And to paraphrase a tweet by Mr. Jeremy Tiang, what did he, was, he said something like, I don't translate meanings. I translate vibes. Oh my god, I love that. It's the vibe conveyor. That is a very Jeremy way of saying it, and I, and I love it. <laughs> but he's yeah. right, though. It is it is about the vibe. So, I mean, even for the title of the story, Zebra, you know, Raining Zebra Finches, I, I feel like if I gave this story to another translator, I am not 100% sure they would end up with the same name for the bird. Like, mm. you know, I think when I was looking up the, the bird, like I could have maybe just kept it simple and just said finches, took the zebra out because, you know, I'm like, what are zebras doing in the title? But I think it makes the title better. So <laughs> I think that's why I left them in in the end. Um, but yeah, like I think the things that seem very little and like, you know, maybe it's just like the name of an animal or whatever, I think can really have these big impacts on the vibe of the story. So that was definitely a challenge. From my perspective as a reader, uh, keeping the word zebra mm -hmm. or zebra in a great choice because uh, here in the UK, a finch is a very boring generic yeah. bird. It's usually if you see a finch, it's a chaffinch, which is slightly less mundane than a sparrow, mm -hmm. but barely. Yeah. There are some quirky finches here, but you wouldn't think of it as being a species that you'd find in the mountains or mm -hmm. uh, forests of yeah. a faraway like asian pacific island mm -hmm. whereas if i have zebra finch i yeah i would uh, I, guess, I guess they're not in taiwan are they they're in this scientific basement but it, it it's it, for me anyway as a reader it, it estranges me a little bit from the animal whereas mm -hmm. finch is about like i said as mundane as the word sparrow yeah so i think that's a great example i was gonna say as well i as a reader i totally agree that the scientific terminology um works in the context of the story there's loads of merging of biology like modern biology modern chemistry and our understandings of it with like magic or if not magic yeah. traditional practices uh, like th there's another sentence in this first paragraph i just paragraph i just love um it is invisible to the naked eye Electricity trickled into the moist soil as if through the veins of leaves, mm -hmm. electrons packed closely together. So there's no, well, electrons is a bit of a science uh, term, but the vibe of like, wait a minute, is this magical? Is this scientific? Mm -hmm. I, is it both? Are they, are they synonyms? Is it fused together? Are we in a realistic story? Are we not? Um, it's all, it's all there and it keeps coming up again and again. Mm -hmm. Um, even with that um, that fertilizer you, you mentioned yeah. that the narrator's mother has, that's probably the most, for me, That's that and the birds are like the two most interesting items in the story because yeah. I think we don't know if it's uh, something she's learned in like, I don't know, getting some 
training in farming mm-hmm. uh, modern like modern techniques we're not entirely clear if it's something more um i don't know indigenous yeah. a local fertilizer maybe and then later on in the story maybe it's something else totally mm-hmm. different i think that's there in the story and i think the way you've translated it meshes in with that and amplifies it mm-hmm. uh my next question because i realize i've not given you much to bounce back on there um what i i guess you already described this a bit but um what has this story's journey from the original chinese uh to possible pu- or planned publication in english what's that story been um so this story is actually coming out i think next march or in the in the spring of next year in massachusetts review which they're they're a great journal their translation editor corin is a very very strong and brilliant advocate of translation so i'm happy that this story found a found a home there um uh in terms of the journey it took a while as <laughs> i feel like most translations do you submit and then you you know hope and you pray and you wait to see what happens but um yeah i feel like i found a good home so i'm happy with that cool i'm having a look at the mass review website so it's a it's a literary journal yes um published by umass in amherst um they they i think they have an issue out right now their fall issue and they are really good at spotlighting translation and especially translation from east asia um so yeah definitely definitely a great one i can try to send you a copy when it when it comes out in in march yeah Sure, and for, for for readers, is this one if readers, <laughs> listeners, if um if a listener has academic access, will they be able to uh, get it digitally? Do you know? Um, I don't actually know the answer to that question. I I think they publish some of their stories like maybe on their site. Um, but this one because right. it's a little long, I don't. I'm not sure where it will live exactly. But that that's a good question. I think if you go to their their website, they probably have more information. I'm having a look on their page for their latest issue mm-hmm. and they've got their table of contents and maybe a quarter or just less than a quarter have links. So I guess they're up on the site. Yeah. As PDFs yeah. that you can open. Oh, cool. uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that yeah. and I'll maybe retroactively add the link to the show notes. Fun. Okay. Next section. Uh, so actually talking about the story, this is where we can get a bit more pretentious. In fact, my question is going to immediately get pretentious. I'm going to use some $10 words. So here we go. I'll just read this as I've written it um, to sound extra stilted. Are biology, indigeneity, and magic all realism, and I've put all realism in brackets for extra pretension, are they commonly bound together in Taiwanese lit? And we talked, I told you a bit, or we talked a bit before about this. So I did a Taiwan season mm-hmm. and biology, indigeneity, so all things indigenous to Taiwan and magical realism did crop up quite a bit. And to refresh my memory, I'm going to open my Taiwan season page and explain that a bit more uh, so that the listeners are privy to our our conversation. Do, 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 do. Taiwan season. Yeah, so... The first episode of that Taiwan season, I was talking to Ji, Ji Da Wei mm-hmm. and his translator, Larissa, Larissa Heinrich, about the membranes, mm-hmm. which doesn't have anything indigenous, but it has a lot of some biological concerns, not that many. Uh, skipping forward to the third episode in that series, this is like ticking all the boxes. It was Wu Mingyi's 
the man with the compound eyes, which has indigenous people in Taiwan, it has indigenous uh, Pacific Islanders. Loads of the thing is set up in the um, like the interior, the mountain region. There seems to be a god of nature. <clears throat> I guess the science is what it goes the lightest on, but it's it it's all there. Um, and Wu Mingyi himself has written like non-fiction biology uh, books. I think they're about flora or something. And then the last episode I did in the series, Chi uh, Chi Zhi, it's Zhi Zhi Ying Lai Zhi Ying Zhi Ying Lai. Um, he uh, has, I think he's like an an expert in little in, in insect biology or something, and that pops up in some of his stories. But that that's like his career. So I kind of wondered if there was a pattern in like the literary, the more sorry, slightly highbrow literary scene in Taiwan. And then when I read this story, lo and behold, even more biology, more indigenous characters, and more sort of flitting between reality and some more speculative realms. So, like, I don't know, is this something you've encountered much reading Taiwanese lit yourself? Or do you have thoughts about it? I think so. I don't feel like I have enough data to, like, extrapolate, like, a, a trend, but... To make a grand statement. Yes, but hmm. I do think, like, so, like, nature writing... Or writing about the natural world has always been really important to Taiwanese literature and you know with writing about indigenous people and their cultures comes a lot of folklore um which is which I think is where the magical realism comes in um I also think I personally tend to gravitate towards stories like that so at least you know what I've read and translated in the past does support that theory um and you know if if I can extend the geography a bit further I would say even a lot of the Hong Kong literature that I've translated aligns with that too. Like, I, I, I think I told you earlier, right, about the poem I translated where a whole stanza was just trees. And like last year I translated a, a couple stories for for a Hong Kong pub that were specifically about a bunch of trees in this neighborhood in San Kong in Hong Kong. So I think as a translator, I've spent so much time translating bio biology um, that for me, I feel like Yes, there is definitely a theme <laughs> in, in Chinese literature, at least, that, that I've interacted with. Right. Yeah. My pet theory is that Taiwanese literary writers in the scene maybe value things that touch on in the indigenous population, things mm -hmm. that touch on the unique natural environment, because there may be things that mark Taiwan as unique. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to drag in the really obvious political conversations one can have about Taiwan, um, but if if you're if you're if you feel like the local identity of your place is important, or you want to consider it as a national identity, then you'd go for some things that make it distinct. So, mm. like, if I if I was so inclined, I maybe wouldn't write a story set in Taipei, which could be interchangeable with any other city mm. in the world. And if I'm trying to be less uh, obviously political about this. I could think about like mainland Chinese writers I've read, when they're trying to convey some kind of Chineseness, they often I think they often go into the countryside as well to more like rural areas. Like the guy uh, I would jump on would be Jia Pinghua. Uh, a lot of his he's very I guess he's into local identity as well. He's very into writing stuff about Shanxi be it Xi'an stories early in his career or as an older man stuff about the mountainous people living in the mountains of Shanxi mm -hmm. and 
I don't know, I guess in that case, it's a way to reach into more places that are more traditional. And with the landscape, you have something that's a bit more eternal. And that feels like a little bit of a parallel with yeah. um, with Taiwan, because you have you have an indigenous people who've been there longer than anyone else. Um, I guess that's what indigenous means. And nothing's going to be more indigenous to Taiwan than the mountains and mm -hmm. the plants and the animals. So I don't know. I, I, I like that pet theory, but I'm aware it's maybe a bit crude as well, because obviously I wouldn't want to say a uh, Taiwanese writer is just using these things uh, as sort of like a, uh, a girder propping up their, I don't know, their patriotism or, or what have you. Well, there, there is a very interesting, there's a sentence in this story that sticks with me a lot, um, where the narrator says, you know, she describes what life on the mountain is like for her and her mother. And then she says, life on the mountain is not as idyllic as people imagine. And I think in this story, like part of the conflict that we that we are seeing, and Cho Chanting does this in Young Gods as well, is like, you have all these Aboriginal traditions that, you know, are core to Taiwan's history and culture. And then you have like the modern world crashing in. And how how can these things coexist, I think is a question that she she asks us asks us. And that tension I think is super interesting. And it also I think makes makes her as a writer like she is not just interested in Taiwanese Aboriginal culture as like a as a theme. She is I think she's actually trying to see like, you know, Taiwan as a place is embodies so many different cultures and types of people and what happens when all these different ideas and and traditions clash i think is is part of it so yeah i think another thing that works for makes it work for me the use of people living in the mountainous or forested area in the i guess the south or the east of the island if i'm remembering right is that these are less wealthy parts of the island so mm -hmm. it's not what a writer could do where you paint rural or farming or aboriginal life as this utopia this like thing we've got to get back to or thing we should be envious of or you know the the, the trope of the noble savage it seems to be pretty clear that this is a less cozy life than you could have if you were a nice white collar um middle class person in taipei live, doing your cushy office job in yep. your nice heated apartment and I guess you see that in the journey or you see, yeah, you see like the social ladder in play with the main character who goes all the way abroad to Scotland to study. And the interesting thing about studying in Scotland is if you're Scottish, it's free as an yeah. undergraduate. If you're uh, from elsewhere in the UK, uh, it's expensive. And if you're from abroad, it's even more expensive. Yeah. So she's, she's got a great opportunity there to go far away and mm -hmm. you might have to remind me in this story does she come back or is she just reminiscing is it just her memories that she's she, having flashbacks to she comes back and right, she, she feels, comes back and she feels guilty about that and like complicated feelings but yeah she, she comes back to live with her mom um and yeah like you were saying earlier about you know this not being like a very i don't know what what the right word is but like one of the recurring things that happens in the story that ends up being a real problem at the end is that they they're they're people keep coming to steal their equipment on the mountain right their cameras um and they report it to like the local police and like you know they don't, nothing can be done really so yeah they're like this is like you know a rural area it's not the it's not taipei right it's not the city and um yeah life is different on the mountain and they do yeah, chores 
thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd so. forgotten about the crime element, but yeah, like there is literally crime. People who didn't have enough to begin with getting robbed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not yeah. it's not a cushy depiction. Mm -hmm. Um right, next question. Um I wanna go into the, the fantastical elements. So we got science, we've got magic question mark. I'll leave a question mark over that. Uh, and like you said, horror starts to creep in. Maybe it's there. Like it does start with a dead animal's yeah, body, a dead yeah. deer. It kind of reminded me of the first scene. I think it is in Train to Busan. Do you know that one? Um, I never found the courage to watch the movie. <laughs> mm, well, it, I don't think you ever see it again. But the very first scene we see uh, undead deer. Oh. I felt the vibe was similar. Yeah, so there's science, there's magic, there's horror, and I'd venture to say there's even stranger things we can't really put a name to. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, if you have thoughts as a reader or as a translator as to mm -hmm. what Joe's doing with the fantastical and weird and maybe genre elements in the story. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like, she is in a way asking us to challenge these different knowledge systems that we have. So, you know, science is a way of thinking and magic or like the supernatural or the the traditions that she had when she was back in the tribe as a witch, that's another form of, you know, knowledge as well. And they clash in, in the story. Um, for, I, there's a scene where the father asks the protagonist like, oh, do you believe in things that are invisible? And she asks, oh, what do you mean by invisible? Like are ghosts, you know, like ghosts or spirits or whatever. And then her father says, no, don't believe in those supernatural things. I'm talking about things that are real, like about knowledge. Mm. Um, so, you know, the protagonist's father and the mother are kind of foils to each other. The father is an educated man, looks down his wife, which spurs her in turn to outdo him. And the one of the turning points is in the story is when basically we find out that the mother, like she in order to like win her daughter over. And I realize this sounds confusing to anyone who didn't read the story, but bear with me. Um, she ends up deciding to like learn all these scientific things. And that is why she knows how to like make fertilizer and everything. I think the, I think the sentence is, um, yeah, mother's vocabulary transformed from the ancient indigenous language that I couldn't understand to properly enunciated scientific terms. Um, so there's a kind of a knowledge system shift that happens here which is interesting because her mother, who was a witch in the tribe, she is now both a woman of science and this maybe former witch. So one big plot point in the story that I feel like I just completely forgot to mention is that the the mom, she tells her daughter that she can turn into a bird. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Very important. She, she told her, yeah, she tells her daughter since, she's been, since her daughter was young, she's heard her mother say, you know, I can turn into a bird and one day I'll do it, do it just for you. Um, and that question is maybe answered, maybe not answered at the end. And, you know, the daughter grows up her whole life waiting for her mother to turn into a bird and resents her for it in, in some ways for not doing it. Um, so, yeah, so the so the mother of the story, she becomes like a woman of science in a way, but also a witch. And I think the question is, like, can she have it all? Can she do can she have both? Um, and you know, her judging by her fate at the end of the story, maybe she can't. So I think part of that is like, you know, there are things that happen in the story where the reader has to ask themselves, did that happen because of magic or did that happen because of some sciencey chemical thing? 
which I think is interesting. And maybe it's both. And I think what Cho Chanting is doing there is, yeah, asking us to like think about what kind of knowledge systems we attach prestige or legitimacy to, right? Like, do we think, you know, her fertilizer with all its chemicals and science stuff, is that more legit or real than, than her magic? So like the deer in the opening scene, did that deer die because of some chemical thing it was exposed to or something else? I think, I think the story wants you to feel very conflicted about that. And I would say to answer the last thing that you talked about horror, I think the horror that, that happens is just another way of amplifying how like wrong things can go when different knowledge systems clash and, and don't work out. So when, when science meets the supernatural or when like old traditions meet modern, modern day technology, um, there can be like fatal consequences, I think is part of what we see in the story. Um, and I think the daughter too has this problem where like um, she realizes that there is a price to pay for knowledge. Um, I feel like I'm just about to like say the biggest spoiler, but <laughs> I'm trying to not, but for example, like, oh, so in the story, we, Plato's story of the cave comes up a lot, right? As a motif. Oh yeah. Like she brings that up a lot. Um, the story about how like there are all these people in the cave who can't see each other but there's fire in the cave so they see oh wait there's only one person in the cave right and there's uh, fire in the cave or something there's several people and one of them and to skip ahead one of them escapes comes yes. back and he's okay i'll rewind for any any <laughs> listeners who haven't heard Polito's allegory of the cave so this was this was one of the i guess he's like the first big name very very big name greek ancient greek philosopher mm. um if you do an undergrad in english lit you will be introduced to this guy and his probably most famous idea you'll learn in philosophy 101 is the allegory of the cave and it's an idea about like our inability to perceive perceive true reality so yeah. in this metaphor a bunch of people are sat in a cave with their backs to the entrance, facing a wall, and a fire is behind them. I always feel it's very convoluted, and there's better ways to get this across. <laughs> but this is this is how it works. They're chained up in a cave. They can, they must have some clamp on their head um, that ensures they can only face the wall. Mm. And because the fire is behind them, uh, they can only see the shadows dancing on the wall. I think that's the main thing. Yeah. You can only see forms and represent. You can only see representations and shapes of the real things. Mm -hmm. um, so if someone puts a horse puppet behind you, or a real horse behind you, you don't see the horse, you see a shadow of the horse. Mm -hmm. You see the um, sort of second order image of the real thing. And then one day, one guy manages to escape from the cave, he's hit by the light and he's blinded, and he can't understand anything he's seeing. Eventually his eyes adjust, and he sees the real world, the true forms, he comes back and I think it goes, no one can understand what he's saying because they can only process the shadows, the forms. And I think it, I guess as well, when he comes, maybe I'm adding my own stuff here. When he's back in the cave, his eyes need to adjust again. At first, he can't see anything in the cave. Then his eyes adjust and he's back to sort of square one. Mm -hmm. And there's a few ways you can read it, I guess. But the main, the philosophical idea is there is a world of real forms real things out there you don't have direct access to it you only have your things your senses feed you 
and you have language to assign names to these things, but you have no access to the real thing. The real thing is a mystery. Yeah. And that is part of what the story is about. Like the, the real thing is a mystery. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, now that you mention it, I, I have like vivid memories again of like translating all the Plato's cave stuff in the, in the story. Um, but it is a very useful motif, I think, for helping readers understand like what she wants to explore. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and a line from Hamlet springs to mind. Sorry, mm -hmm. what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to just say that she compares the birds, like the, the finches, to the prisoners at one point, too. But, right. yeah. What was the line from Hamlet? Um, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Yes. And that's kind of how I feel about my my own view of, like, what's real and what what can science cover is it's a completely unoriginal idea. But I think... Science is a, probably a, a means to eventually describe everything that exists, but it sort of follows there must be things or phenomenons that exist that we just can't describe yet. And that's probably, I mean, if you think about all the things people, ancient humans would have thought were magic that are now within the bounds of science, you would assume, or it would seem logical to follow that there must be things out there today we think are supernatural, which will eventually one day be made mundane by chemistry or biology or physics or quantum physics or, or yeah. something yeah so i don't know have you ever we're we're gonna go on a tangent here but i think the listeners will love it have you ever encountered anything that you just can't explain rationally that you think was real in some way um yes i think so but i'm trying to like find the example to give yeah i feel i feel like i have I know that after this call is over, I will think of it that. and then not saying it. But yeah, I, I, I definitely have. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I have one. I've okay. dreamed the future once. There's another oh. time I think I may have, but that could be just boiled down to things that were on my mind. Mm -hmm. But this, this one is uncanny. Wow. It's a little bit of a convoluted story. It's, about, it's, it's more convoluted than the allegory of a cave. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll try and relay this one. So when I was in secondary school, uh, the school introduced a sort of a game to encourage people to have their school dinners mm -hmm. uh, rather than going outside the school because there was loads of unhealthy food you could get outside the school that we were allowed to go get, like pies, pizzas and stuff. Mm -hmm. This is meat pies, by the way, not American-style pies. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so they were trying to encourage people to stay in the school, have lunch from the school dinner ladies. Um, so they introduced uh, this game where the bell would ring at a random point early in the lunch break. So, and if you were at the front of the dinner lady's queue when the bell rung, you got your lunch for free and you maybe got a cake or something. Or no, they would give you a prize. That's crucial. They would give you a prize. And I had this dream where um, my um, my little brother, I, I, in, in the dream, I came home from school and I came in the front door, right in front of the front door, there was the stairs. I looked up the stairs and my little brother was up there with the shopping trolley. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? Why have you got a shopping trolley? And he said, or I learned, or he told me, or something that he'd won the bell competition. And I was like, what did you win? So I came upstairs and he had won a blue, a CD that had a blue cover. And on the back, there were two scantily clad women. And it was like a hip hop or R&B CD or something and I said oh well done you won shame that you this isn't music that you like whatever and then I woke up 
And then, like, I think the next day, pretty sure it was the next day, I came home. And my mom was like, your brother won something. He oh won the God. bell competition. And I was like, what did he win? A CD. Uh-huh. And I went up, and it was a pink cover CD with two scantily clad women on the back. But it was, like, UK um, Ministry of Sound dance hits. So it was, like, dance music, not hip-hop and R&B. Yeah. Um, and there was no shopping trolley. That's freaky. And I swear to God, I'm not making it up. I didn't, like, it's not that he won it and then the next day I had the dream. It happened in that order. Yeah. And I can't explain that. Wow. Did you tell your brother that you had the dream? Yeah, I've told a lot of people. Yeah. And the only one who's like, eh, you're, you've you've muddled something in your memories, my dad. He's like the <laughs> uber skeptic. And I, I'm pretty sure I have not, like, fudged it in my brain. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's some time flowing backwards or something now that you mentioned that though it, it does remind me of something like my so i have a, i have a brother too i have a twin brother right and we are sometimes in sync in a way that i cannot explain like i like maybe it's some kind of twin telepathy thing but a few times we've been sick on our birthdays at the exact same time or like what there was one day where i was feeling like a little i had like a tummy flu or something and then i found out the next day he was feeling sick that day too um, and then at, today we were on a call and he was saying very specific things like that I had just Googled <laughs> like earlier this morning. Uh, so I don't know. Like, yeah, not as, not as crazy as your dream, but sometimes in life I'm just like, maybe, I don't know. So do you, did you say you're twins? Yeah. It's funny. They do say that about twins, don't they? Yeah, There's they some... do. They totally do. So I don't know. <laughs> I remember um, there was. Uh, did you ever read the Philip Pullman His Dark Materials books? No, I did. Golden didn't. Compass. Well, I did read the Golden Compass. I think. Right. Um, my dad gave me us like a one of these the science of books. It was the science of the His Dark Materials trilogy, and there's a thing in those. I think it's the second or the third book, where there are these. Um, characters who have this way of communicating called a, a lodestone and uh-huh. they use it to send uh like morse code messages like little doot, 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 doot. they're just little rocks that they tap with a magnet or something but the thing they can do that like a mobile phone couldn't is that they can send the messages across parallel universes because uh... that's a big thing in those books and uh there's no scientific explanation for it but the book the science of one pose uh, poses a theory that this one way this could work could be quantum entanglement mm-hmm. based on like the sort of description in the book which is i think this is a thing that has been done um to some extent where like scientists will split whatever atomic or subatomic particle and they'll find that if they modify one so say there's part one and part two and they're identical and they're still linked and if they let's say prod part one, part two will have the same reaction as if it were being prodded. And the magic of it is no matter how far apart they are, the effect persists. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm sure the book said, what if that what if that applied to twins? That could be an explanation for like, why no matter what the distance, you get so many anecdotal stories about twins having mm-hmm. these... Uh, encounters what if it goes back to when they were one little egg or whatever maybe i don't know it's weird to think about yeah we should get back to the story (laughs) (laughs) um 
I think I just had more more story more questions about the story itself mm. um I noticed when I was reading that none of our characters get named they're yeah, just like yeah. mother father mm-hmm. often that's a way to I don't know pose characters as like symbolic figures standing in for like all mothers all fathers what have you so I was wondering because I got no idea about this do you think the family drama in the story is a sim- symbolic or representative of either family dynamics in Taiwan or like is it a metaphor for other sort of dramas playing out inside Taiwan or even in wider society but might be more interesting to stick with Taiwan first um Yes, for sure. I think that's a good point about the names. Um, it definitely made like I mean, not having to translate names is is helpful for me as a translator. <laughs> right. But um, one of the more like big picture themes that they do explore is like discrimination against Aboriginal people in Taiwan. Mm. There is like one part of the story where the father like calls the mother a not very nice word um, that you know is sometimes used as like yeah, just a a bad word for talking about Aboriginal people, um, and like he, you know, looks down on her because she's not educated in the way that he is. Um, he thinks because you know she comes from a tribe, and yeah, he just doesn't think she's smart. Um, and then, the, and so the mother feels excluded because of this. Um, and I feel like, and this is also based on my reading of other works by Cho that she does kind of explore this question of like, how do Aboriginal people in Taiwan like? how are they treated into society and how have like certain things or certain like changes in in national policy or or what have you like impacted their lives. So that's definitely one of the more, you know, the big picture national drama I think at play here um, for sure. There's, so there's like a thing that happens in the story where the mom like oftentimes will sneak into school and take her daughter out and, and go to the tribe. And at one point her daughter like Get sick of it and refuses refuses to do that anymore and there's like a certain kind of like shame i think that the mother feels and that the daughter feels about you know being associated with her mom and her mom's tribe so yeah that tension i think is is one of the national dramas that that they explore from what i remember in the story the the narrator never explicitly says like oh my father is han chinese i yeah. think we just sort of infer from the fact that he's picking on her yeah. mom yeah that yeah he must be from the if not if he's not han then he's mm-hmm. he's from the sort of non non-tribal majority yeah yeah i don't i don't think i got anything else particularly insightful to say about that other than I guess we all go through this to some extent if we have a mother and father who are quite different from each other. Yeah. Like, I'm, I don't know, maybe some people don't, but my mum and dad are extremely different in temperament yeah. and they're divorced, so there's some there's some push and pull there. Yeah. But I think anyone who's felt that push and pull between a, a mum and a dad, especially if they're different, might find something to relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. so. What you said about names reminded me of something, which um, in the story there the narrator tells a story about like um it's this aboriginal story about a boy who turned a boy who turned into a bird because his mother always neglected him and she says something about like oh the boy missed his mother and never stopped calling her her name which was anna and then the narrator says it's been a long time since i called my mother anna too that's how i translated it anna as an a n n a and then I sent it to the, to the author and she was like, actually, they're not saying Anna, they're saying Anna or something, which is 
the Aboriginal term for mother. Right. So the only name that I had in the story ended up not being a name either that I had to correct. <laughs> so, yeah. So. In the Chinese characters, was that just like the phonetic, like an, yes, na, I just did, right? Took it verbatim. Right, because I guess it, that word is not from Chinese; it's from an indigenous language. So it's got to be turned into those just what's the word phonic sound mm -hmm. characters, so that yeah, as a translator, you might rightly or you might as you might just as accurately read that as the transliteration from European name, Hannah. Yeah. But when she said that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, was this story interesting to you, given that it was from the perspective of someone who had spent some time overseas mm -hmm. as an overseas student? Yeah, it, it, it was. I, I resonate with that for sure. And like the characters, like, feelings when she comes home, um, like leaving home and coming back and feeling guilty being abroad, like all of that I think is, I relate to a lot. Um, I feel like I actually tend to really enjoy stories where one of the characters is like stranded between <laughs> stories in this way. There's there's another Taiwanese story that I, or a sample that I just translated for books from Taiwan where they there, there are letters going back and forth between Taiwan and San Francisco. And I'm based in the Bay Area now, so when I read that, I was like, "Oh, relatable." So, <laughs> so yeah, I I do like that um, that the story played with that, and I think the way the story is structured, we kind of go between we go between present and past, and Taiwan and Glasgow. Like we we kind of hop between different timelines, which was also challenging to translate. But I think it makes the story feel more universal somehow, and what what they're going through. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of gives the reader the feeling of being in two places at once, which I guess the narrator is in more than one way, both yeah. sort of from a family angle, cultural angle, geographic angle, there are maybe linguistic angle, knowledge angle, all sorts of different ways that she's being tugged in both directions. And yeah, the form of the story gels with that, mm. totally. I guess we can go to the miscellaneous questions. We're, we're getting through these at a decent clip, which is nice. So this one, it's the Chinese word of the day for the episode. Sometimes I think of one myself uh, in advance, or often it's I'm looking one up because I'm looking for some interesting word that my Chinese is not good enough to encompass. This time I didn't do that. So, so I'm hoping, uh, have you got one? Yes, I picked one from the story, in, in fact. Um, right. So... In Chinese, it's Mei Yu Ji, which is plum rain season. Perfect. And I picked it because it sounds nice. But in in the story, it's it's they mentioned plum rain season a few times, and that is what it is basically. Is I think between like April to July, summer ish months in in Taiwan, and I think in Hong Kong too, where it rains, <laughs> and it rains a lot here. So I always like when I think. When I'm in when I'm in, in in the Bay Area where it never rains in in, Cal in Berkeley, whenever I open my phone's weather app, um, sometimes like it'll show me Hong Kong's weather by accident, and I'll mm. always know that it's Hong Kong because I see it's raining. Um, <laughs> so now that I'm back, it's rained already. So yeah, I I love rain um, even more now that I really get it in California. So yeah, my word of the day is um, plum rain. So, That's perfect. Um, for listeners who've never experienced that, it is it is something special. Yes. Like, I 
my time in China, I was living in uh, Zhejiang first year and then the rest of it in Shanghai. Mm. And the seasons there, like I figured, were fairly <laughs> relatable. The climate, it's most, more or less, there's four seasons. Yeah. It's warmer on average than, than like Scotland or England. Winter felt like about the same temperature as, mm-hmm. as Scotland or England. But the plum rain season was like the one anomaly. I guess in, in the UK, we have a thing called April showers, where you oh, get yeah. some sporadic light rain in April. Plum rain season's a bit more hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't ready for it when it first hit. But yeah, yeah. it was also kind of pleasant though, because it's still a nice temperature. And if mm-hmm. you're indoors, you get to hear the rain on the roof. And the, yeah. the, off, the room that my office was in had really good acoustics for rain on the roof. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Not, nothing nicer than being inside with a nice hot drink. Yeah. Yeah, I do miss the rain. I mean, it actually did rain in Berkeley before I left, which is like like a once a year occasion type thing. Um, but yeah. Glasgow's very wet as well. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. The, the west coast of the rain in Britain comes in from the west. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why Ireland's so wet. They get hit first. And then oh, yeah. like I'm in the west coast of England or west-ish of England. Mm-hmm. And despite being much further south than where I'm from in Scotland, I'm from the east coast in Scotland. So mm-hmm. I actually get rained on here more than I do up in the cold north. Okay, enough about rain. Uh, next miscellaneous question. It's a piece of music that you would pair with a story, perhaps if you were setting it to a film or mm-hmm. adapting it for a film. So I've actually picked a film soundtrack for my choice. I've picked a section of music from the soundtrack for the film Annihilation that came out a few years ago now and I picked it because it's some of the weirdest, eeriest, spookiest um, stuff I've ever heard. It's, it's terrifying um, and it's quite brief. It yeah, I listened to it a bit. Yeah. Um, very spooky. Yeah, the, the YouTube upload has some quite funny comments. Like, oh. I don't know. Uh, like they'll tag the exact second when it gets really freaky, and they're like, "I'm alone in my room and I don't like it." Oh yeah. <laughs> it's behind me, isn't it? The, the, the film soundtrack is kind of eerie or quiet for most of the, most of it, and then in this track it does a bit of a spooky crescendo very slowly, and then all of a sudden the alien, the other, the thing outside of your philosophy is in the room with you, or it's on the it's on the screen on the CCTV camera if we're talking about reading zebra finches, and you, there's just no way to process it, and it's kind of horrifying. So that's why I picked that. Um, do you have a musical pairing? I looked at a bunch before before this podcast and thought about it and went back and forth. I don't have like a strong candidate, but I wanted to find something with like nature-y type lyrics. So mm-hmm. one of them that I looked at was like the song Ivy by Taylor Swift. And the old widow goes to the stone every day, but I don't let you 
So I was, that was the first place I looked basically. Um, but I also like, there is Miley Cyrus has a song called Mother's Daughter that is kind of a rock song. So not really the vibe, but some of the lyrics in that song remind me of this story because our narrator, our narrator is her mother's daughter. And there's a lyric in that song that says something about like a witch or something. So I was like, huh, that kind of feels apt. soundtrack that feels a little bit spooky and sounds like it's being recorded on a mountain would would probably <laughs> be a good one good fit for this one well, this is wonderful news because this means if someone is searching for chinese literature miley cyrus this oh, episode yeah. might be the top of their results yeah. so that's a it's a victory as far as i'm concerned <laughs> yeah. yeah i forgot to say the other thing about annihilation is nature and the weirdness of nature is also a big theme in yeah. that film but also in the books it's based on so I was going to say if readers enjoyed this story, they should go read Jeff Vandermeer's uh, Annihilation or Area X trilogy, mm -hmm. but that'll have to be months in the future after they've had a chance to read this story, because yeah. they're getting it secondhand from us so yeah. far. So if you're enjoying this secondhand delivery of bits of the story, <laughs> um, go pick up the Area X trilogy, yeah. I think, because it's, it's fab. Now, the, the next question I've got here, this is one I will snip out for the show's Patreon feed. Uh, Listeners on the main episode will hear because I've sped it up. Okay. But, so if they want to get the question, it's on the Patreon feed. Patreon.com slash T-R-C-H-F-I-C. I actually already sort of asked a question like this, but yes. I'll ask this phrasing again. Okay. Do you think that nature is hiding any scary or magical unknown things or entities? <laughs> Okay, and I'll close off the bonus question there. Listeners will have just heard a bunch of blah, 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 and they'll have no, had no idea what we're talking about. Okay. But that's fine, because we're getting on to the final questions, the further reading questions. So I've already recommended the Area X trilogy by mm -hmm. Jeff Vandermeer, but if, if listeners in the future who've read the story want more, or if listeners closer to our time right now are intrigued and would like to read more like this, where would you direct? I think... I will plug another like another book by a you know young Taiwanese writer. Um, so Jenna Tang, who I think has been on your show and talked about this mm. book, Fang Siqi's First Love Paradise by Lin Yihan. Um, I would I will plug that as well. I think similar to this one, although they're very different in terms of the plot or whatever, they are both books I think that make you feel a little conflicted and uncomfortable 
at, at key times. So, and they're written by, you know, Taiwanese women writers. So would recommend that one. And then a book that is actually coming out, I think, when is it coming out? Um, it's coming out in the UK from Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, and in the US from Grey Wolf, um, Natasha Bruce, who is another wonderful translator. She has translated the 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 novel Owlish by the Hong Kong writer Dorothy Tse. And, oh, yeah. and that one I, I would recommend as well. Um, not about indigenous culture, but it is about, I think, Hong Kong tradition. And there are parts of it that can feel a little grotesque and horror. There is a twist in it, you know, so I think in terms of that, um, I would I would also recommend that book. Also because I like her as a translator. <laughs> I have not had Natasha on this show yet, and I've actually Ooh. had hardly any Hong Kong uh, stories or books covered. It's a real, it's probably the one last big um You should do Owlish then when it comes out, because it'll, it'll be a hit. Yeah, it, it'll, be, it'll, it'll be a great one. Yeah, no, I'd like to read that one. I yeah I've given my recommendation I already said it, the Area X trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer um, mm. nothing else springs to mind so I'll take us to the final question what are you working on as a translator I guess you've told us a bit about that mm -hmm. um, so there's that and and additionally what you're reading just now sure so I like I said before I'm translating um, Cho Chan Ting's like other book of stories Young Gods so working on that one. Um, and then I just finished translating some poems by this Hong Kong writer called Keith Liu. They looking forward to seeing them out someday. And another Hong Kong poet that I've been translating for basically since forever, who I would be remiss not to mention is um, Chung Kwok Kung, also called Derek Chung. He's a Hong Kong poet. Um, and his work is has just been, it's, it's so formative to my journey as a translator. He's, I think, the first author I, I ever translated. So. I feel like I'm perennially working on his his work because of that reason. Um, and then, did you say what I'm reading right now? Uh, yeah. I am actually not reading anything right now, but that is intentional yeah. because I'm back in Hong Kong. So my plan is to go to a bookstore and finally, you know, be able to buy a bunch of Chinese books without shipping. So my plan is to read something, but not reading anything right now. Okay, awesome. Enjoy your trip to the bookstore then. Thank you. I'll mention what I'm reading since it's yes <laughs> it's weirdly relevant. It's it's a Sinoist book book um, that I I think it was one of the first ones I helped them work on. Um, it's called Songs Songs from the Forest by Zhang Wei. It's really nothing like this story, but it is partly about um, animals and the forest. Okay. And I'll say no, I'll say no more than that because it's. It, it would, you know, I don't want to give a synopsis of the book, but yeah, it's um, it is a weird parallel that you know we're talking about nature and animals in this story, and that's what's in that book. But that is that is all really. Um, that's all I can say about that. That's all I'm reading. May, is there anything we've not touched on at all? Anything you'd like to say that we've not said yet? I think we covered everything. Yeah, I I think so. Magical. In that case, uh, before I hit stop on the record button. I'll just say thank you very much for coming on, um, and thanks for introducing me to this story. This was right up my alley, and I'll be looking forward to probably getting my hands on a copy of Young Gods when it's, once it's out. Alright, that's the end of the show. Now I'm still afflicted by my cough, so I'm going to try and make this really quick. 
best things that you can do for the show. Uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Subscribe if you're not subscribing. Tell people online. Follow us on Instagram at trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Join the Discord to speak to other listeners and myself, if you like. But of course, the best thing you can do is to tell other human beings. Tell your indigenous mother. Tell your colonizing father. Tell a witch. Tell a bucket of fertilizer. Just, just tell anyone. You know, I'm not thinking right here. I've got COVID. I'll let you figure out the rest. But um, until you do, Zaijian. Yeah.